good evening and welcome to the first Middle East Center seminar of Trinity Term. I'm very, very happy to introduce our speaker for today, Leila Parsons. She is an associate professor of history and Islamic studies at McGill University. And more relevantly here, she did her DPL thesis at the Middle East Center some time ago. Uh, she came here in 1990 to write a DPL thesis, and it was my great um, privilege to serve as her doctoral supervisor. Leila's father was Sir Anthony Parsons, the distinguished Arabist and British diplomat who ended his diplomatic career as foreign policy advisors to Margaret uh, Thatcher. But he was an Arabist, and Leila spent some of her early years uh, in Arab countries. Uh, when she, she did a degree in Arabic at Exeter University, when she arrived at Oxford to do her DPhil thesis, she learned Hebrew as well, to be able to use both languages in her uh, research. She arrived in 1990, um, and she was here for five years. It took her a bit of time to complete her thesis, because when she arrived, she came with a baby, Simon, who was three weeks old. So she had to combine motherhood with academic research, and she did it very, very successfully. Um, Leila's doctoral thesis was on the Druze between Arabs and Israelis uh, during the 1948 war, and she, there was hardly anything on the subject in any language, so she had to draw mostly overwhelmingly on primary sources in Arabic and in Hebrew, and she produced a very superior doctoral thesis, which was published as a book under the title The Druze Between Palestine and Israel, 1947 to 1949. Uh, and recently, earlier this year, uh, Leila has published a new book, a biography of Fauzi al-Kawugji. The title of the book is The Commander, Fauzi al-Kawugji and the Fight for Arab Independence, 1914 to 1948. Um, there are some flyers if you would like to order the book from Al-Saki, the British publishers of her book. Um, it gave me a very great pleasure to read her book, which is extremely well-written uh, and easy to read and interesting to read, but also underpinned by the most serious and impeccable scholarship. Uh, and for me, it was a pleasure to see the development of Leila as a scholar from the days when she was a doctoral student to now when she's a mature scholar able to produce not just a narrow piece of 
historical research, but a very um, um, major contribution on an Arab personality. Eugene Rogan was going to chair this meeting, but we decided that I will chair it instead, because although Eugene and I share the same birthday, he thinks that I'm older and wiser. <laughs> but I can, I can report to you very accurately what Eugene thinks about Leila's book, because he wrote an endorsement on the back, and in the endorsement he said, an outstanding book that tells the history of the Middle East from the First World War to the 1948 Palestine War through the life of one of the most influential Arabs of the 20th century. Fawzi al-Kawogji should be a household name for his role in the Arab world's failed struggles against European imperialism and Zionism. In this fascinating political biography, Leila Parsons restores Kaugji to his rightful place and has produced one of the most important new works in modern Middle Eastern history. Unquote. Uh, I couldn't have said it better myself. <laughs> so I now call on Leila to give her talk about the book under the title Writing an Arab Officer into the 1948 War for Palestine. Thank you so much. Um, it's wonderful um, to be here, and uh, many thanks to Kaya and to Eugene for all their work in, um, in bringing me here. Avi was a wonderful supervisor all those thousands of years ago. I think I knew he was wonderful at the time, but I was a little bit scared of him. Um, <laughs> but since I've started to supervise my own students, I really have come to understand what a fantastic supervisor he, really, he was. Um, he made me meet with him every two weeks, regardless of whether I'd made any progress or not, which set up a kind of a wonderful framework for, for moving forward, because I was basically scared of my my meetings with Avi, and I knew that I had to come up with, with something. And that, I think, is what made me complete my thesis, um, in addition, of course, to his incredible knowledge and erudition. So I uh, thank you, Avi. I really appreciate the start that you gave me. And Eugene's been a wonderful mentor while I was here and, and since also, as I've skipped around from job to job and finally settled at McGill. So I'll get to the point of the talk. I'm going to start out with a very brief synopsis of the book, and then I'm going to explain the intellectual reasons that led me to this topic and how I hope it is an intervention in the field. And I'm going to do that by focusing on the final chapter, the chapter on 1948. But if anyone has uh, any questions or, or any interest in other parts of the book, I'm very happy to talk about that afterwards. So the book is a history of the Eastern Arab world between World War I and the War for Palestine in 1948, told through the life of one man. Fazil Kawukji was from Tripoli in what is today Lebanon. He was born under the rule of the Ottoman Empire and went to military college in Istanbul. He started his professional life just before World War I broke out, serving as an officer in the Ottoman army and then fighting on the Ottoman side throughout the war. 
When the Ottomans were beaten by the French and the British in 1918, the eastern Arab provinces of the Ottoman Empire were invaded, conquered, and occupied by British and French forces. Kawukji spent the following years fighting against European occupation of Arab lands in a series of anti-colonial rebellions that broke out in Syria, Palestine, and Iraq. The book tells the story of those rebellions and tries to open up Kawukji's world by narrating the events he lived in and through from the inside out. The story ends with the last anti-colonial war that he fought in, namely the 1948 War for Palestine, in which he led a volunteer Arab force that was committed to preventing the establishment of the State of Israel. So the book is a narrative history. It's deliberately written as an engaging story with Kawukji and his fellow soldiers as protagonists driving the action. And I use 41 images throughout the book to kind of expand the narrative from a photograph of the dining room where he would have eaten in the military academy in Istanbul in the late 19th century to a British bombing raid on a fort where he and his men were stationed in the Iraqi desert to an image of the destruction of Berlin in the summer of 1945 when he was taken prisoner by the Russian army to a picture of him in the hilltops of what is today the West Bank in Palestine in 1936. And I deliberately don't put captions under the photographs, although all the information um, for the photographs is is in the back of the book, um, because I didn't want the photographs to be just illustrations. I really wanted them to kind of work with the narrative, to open up the narrative um, through visual means. The narrative is driven by Arabic sources, from Kawukji's private archive in Beirut, the archive of the Institute of Palestine Studies in Beirut, the Center for Historical Documents in Damascus, and the dozens of published memoirs written by Kawukji's fellow officers and soldiers. This was a strategic choice on my part to make Arabic sources the main source base for driving the narrative. It's amazing what happens if you shift the focus away from the colonial archive and make a strategic choice to construct your base narrative from Arabic sources. There's an obvious shift in perspective but you're also forced to be accountable to the complexity of the political landscape on the Arab side. This isn't to say that I don't use colonial sources at all. They're in the book, but they are used sparingly and often woven into the narrative to show the distance of colonial bureaucrats and soldiers from the reality of what was happening on the ground on the Arab side. And throughout the book, I try to draw the reader's attention to the mechanics of the link between the sources and the narrative without breaking the flow of the story. So I don't do a lot of talking about method in the book, even though there is quite a lot of thought about method, and I've published in various scholarly journeys, journals. Sorry, I'm jet-lagged. <laughs> I only arrived from Montreal yesterday. Various scholarly journals about the method in the book. And one of the reasons I don't talk about method is because I wanted the book to be a good story. One thing that's, it, that's very important to know is that the book is published by a trade press, not an academic press. And the first draft that I sent to the press was full of post-colonial theory, feminist theory, and some narrative theory. And my editor at Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux, the press that the the book came out with in the US, said, if this is how you want to do it, uh, then I'm sorry, you'll just have to send it to an academic press. We don't want to publish the book with this kind of discussion and this kind of jargon in it. But if you want this important story to reach more people then you need to really reframe it 
um, and send me something clearer that engages me and propels me through the narrative. So I had a choice. I had the book, you know, almost completely written in, very, in kind of draft form. And I decided to totally reconceptualize it um, and start it over from the beginning, partly because I was getting a little bit sick of theory myself at that point, you know, the kind of what people in cultural studies are now starting to call the backlash uh, had started to happen, and uh, there was a sense that theory was just leading to a lot of navel-gazing, and partly because it was a real challenge to leave my academic props to one side. So I completely rewrote the book, and for better or, or worse, what we have is the result. Today I'm going to focus on the final long chapter of the book called Palestine 1948. This chapter, even though it comes at the end of the book, was really my starting point for the whole project, because the original idea of writing the life story of this man came from an unease about the way Arab officers and soldiers and politicians have been written into the history of the 1948 war in English. So I'll just briefly spend a couple of minutes explaining a 1948 war. I know I probably don't need to do that to this audience, but in case there are a couple of people here who are not so familiar with it. On the eve of the 1948 war, the British had been ruling Palestine since 1917. The Jewish settler community had grown in that period of British rule from a few thousand to a community of about 600,000 that was demanding a Jewish state in Palestine. The Palestinian Arab community, which numbered about 1.4 million people, had just watched the neighboring states of Jordan, Lebanon, and Syria receive full independence from British and French colonial rule, and they weren't willing to give up their country to the Jewish community in Palestine, who had been structurally supported by the British. By 1948, the British, bankrupt from World War II, decided to abandon Palestine, and they withdrew their troops and ended British rule, leaving the two sides to fight it out. The war lasted just over a year. It was fought between the newly declared Israeli state and the Palestinians, in addition to the small new armies of some of the surrounding Arab states. The Israeli army was victorious, and the map changed from this to this. In the course of the war, over 750,000 Palestinians left a safer territory or were directly expelled by the Israeli army and not allowed to return by the new state of Israel, thus creating the Palestinian refugee crisis, which is still ongoing today. So as you can imagine, and as many in this audience know very well, there is a big historiography in English on this war. In the 50s, 60s, and 70s, this historiography was dominated by Israeli nationalist history that portrayed Israel as a small, struggling state, miraculously winning in the face of the overwhelming might of the combined Arab armies of Egypt, Syria, Lebanon, and Jordan. This nationalist historiography has been overturned in the last 25 years by a group sometimes referred to as the New Historians, who used the Israeli archives on the war, which were declassified in the, in the 1980s, to overturn some of the Israeli nationalist myths about the war. These historians showed that Israel, far from being tiny and weak and struggling against the much larger combined Arab armies, was in fact an equal match for the Arab armies. They also showed that Israeli alliances with some forces on, that, that Israel had alliances with some forces on the Arab side and that Israel was responsible for direct expulsions of Palestinians from their villages and of massacres of Palestinians during the war. Here's a slide with our very own Avi Schleim centrally placed on the list um, of some of the most prominent of these historians. Now, of course, these new historians did not discover this history. 
Others, like the well-known historian Walid Khalidi, had written about the expulsion of the Palestinians before the new historians, and the Palestinians themselves always knew what had happened to, what had happened to them in 1948. But by dismantling Israeli nationalist myths, the new historians did open up a whole field of historical inquiry, which others have been able to build on. Even Benny Morris, who I'm about to be very critical of, and who has since been completely discredited on the pro-Palestinian left because of ethno-nationalist and racist statements he has, he has made in interviews, is still drawn on by historians sympathetic to the Palestinians for the huge amount of empirical evidence that he gathered in the Israeli archives of atrocities committed against Palestinians during the war. But what I want to talk about today is how have Arab soldiers and officers been represented in this new history? We have surprisingly little narrative that takes Arab officers and soldiers seriously as protagonists. What exactly do I mean by this? I mean that the Arab officers are not given proper context in most cases. There is very little serious detailed attention paid to the narrative arc of their life before 1948 and little attention even to their immediate political context in 1948, located in Baghdad, Damascus, or Beirut. They are somehow plopped in to a narrative that is already made and only really interested in the complexity of the Jewish and the British actors. Of course, there are exceptions to this generalization. Walid Khalidi is written on the Iraqi general Ismail Safwat, um, the Jordanian general, Abdallah Tal, features in Avi's work, um, and Avi draws on Abdallah Tal's memoir um, as a source in, in collusion across the Jordan. And there are a couple of other exceptions. But generally speaking, I think it's fair to say that Arab officers and soldiers are these kind of two-dimensional plopped-in figures. And where there is a description of Arabs in this historiography in English, it is often refracted through a prism of Orientalist language which casts Arab men as inherently venal, cowardly, or incompetent. And I know we're all tired of hearing about Orientalism as a kind of collective sigh in Middle East studies now when people raise the issue of Orientalism. But in the case of the history of the Arab-Israeli conflict and the historiography around this war in particular, Orientalism is still kind of um, alive and kicking, so it's hard to not talk about it as a way of kind of intervening in the historiography. Not surprisingly, given his more recent statements, Benny Morris is perhaps the starkest example of this. And I'll just uh, read this to you. This is from actually the essay in, um, in Eugene and Arvey's edited book, The War for Palestine, but you can find many, many examples of this kind of language in Morris's work. The refugeedom of the 700,000 Palestinians was essentially a product of the war, of the shelling, shooting and bombing, and of the fears that these generated. But the flight of the Palestinians was also due to their incompetent, self-serving and venal leadership, a leadership that failed to prepare properly for war, then plunged headlong into it, and finally fled at the first whiff of grape shot leaving behind leaderless, bewildered, and defeated communities, which then also took flight. That's an incredibly hostile piece of writing um, about what happened in 1948. A kind of hostility that I didn't really see when I was a student, when I was reading his work, and I kind of see it, I see it now all over the place. But just to also be clear that this kind of language is coming also from the colonial uh, precursor 
Um, this is a slide of just some of the things that colonial officials have said about Arab men. Um, Edward Keith Roach, who was um, one of the district commissioners during the mandate, um, talking about the kind of personality or emotional qualities of Arab men, says that although living conditions and the environment were easier, we had not changed the Arab character. It remained much the same. The only real change we had made to Arab life was to get their women to accept the abolition of the use of wooden stools in childbirth. I'm not even going to talk about that. That's another uh, whole thing. For short spells, they, the men, would show intense physical activity, but their efforts would burn out for lack of endurance and routine. Or the famous Glub Pasha in A Soldier with the Arabs. One of the major causes of the Arab failure in 1948 was their unwillingness to face facts. Not only did they fail to study the potential military strengths of both sides, but they accused of treachery any man with the courage to speak the unpalatable truth. And of course, there's a huge body of Orientalist texts on Arab man, in quotation marks, um, that this kind of language is connected with, um, and which I'm not going to go into here, obviously, and it's been very well critiqued by Joseph Massad, Francis Hasso, Wilson Jacob, Paul Amar, and so on. I just want to give you a visual representation of what I'm talking about. These are two photographs taken by Life magazine. Life did a whole series of photographs um, of the war. It's a fascinating archive. Any students in the room who are interested in photography, the Life archive on 1948 is incredibly rich. This photograph is of uh, an Arab, a small Arab company in 1948, and you can see the way that it's been staged. You know, a kind of carpet has been put down. This figure, oh, I don't have a, I don't have a pointer, but the figure in the corner is kind of staring menace, menacingly um, at the camera, and there's almost a kind of strange sexuality, actually, about the photograph. Uh, the other photograph is of a unit in the Haganah, and you can see the contrast, the kind of boisterous informality, something that would look very, very familiar to an American audience reading Life magazine in 1948. The Haganah looked just like American GIs, whereas the Arab soldiers look like something very strange and very different, something that would be difficult to relate to. Same photographer took a picture of Kawukji, which is, again, a very strange photograph. There's a carpet on the back. He's dressed, he's dressed in an interesting way. He's got a kind of bomber jacket on and, um, and obviously the cigarette and so on. And I've looked at this photograph quite a lot over the past few years. And, you know, I sometimes see a kind of cheekiness in it as if he's playing with the photographer's attempt to kind of orientalize him. The press very much wanted me to have a photograph like this on the cover of the book. I fought them really, really hard because, for me, a photograph which was taken by a friend, a fellow soldier, it's a snapshot taken in the desert in 1936 when he was on his way to Palestine to fight, does a completely different kind of work in terms of drawing you in to a more intimate kind of connection with this person who had, you know, a context and a history that, you know, was very much little understood by, obviously, by the life photographers. So that's just a visual representation of the point that I'm making about the historiography in English on the war. My first book on 1948 was located squarely in the tradition of the, this so-called new history writing on the war. And this history was new in the sense that it had a new politics. It was coming from the left at the time, and it was a critique of a very dominant nationalist narrative. 
but methodologically it was still fairly straightforward political and military history that engaged with 1948 through the framework of a number of whodunit questions. This is a very legalistic type of history writing, and my own work from this time is full of phrases like burden of proof, smoking gun evidence, and so on. This is a history that is preoccupied with asking questions about whose side people were really on, who was to blame for the outcome of certain battles, and so on. More importantly, the fact that most of these histories were also based almost entirely on British and Israeli sources meant that inevitably the distant disdain in the sources towards Arab officers and soldiers was reproduced in the meta-narratives of the new historians. And just as an aside, I started to kind of think about these methodological issues after I had moved to the States and started to read feminist uh, critiques and debates about objectivity and feminist critiques of history with a capital H. I was teaching by this time in the States, but I was also sitting in on classes at Harvard on uh, feminist method. Now, the word feminist method doesn't appear anywhere in the book, but feminist method helped me think through the way the narrative is structured and helped me make certain choices about sources and context. And I'm happy to talk more about that in the Q&A for anyone who's interested. So in short, and to simplify somewhat, there were two reasons that Arab figures were decentered and objectified. One, this rather boisterous whodunit style of history, which was always looking to prove things rather than open up a more contingent historical landscape. And two, the fact that most historians' narratives were based on Israeli and British sources, which were themselves already distant from the complexities of the Arab side. And of course, this second point is tied also to the substrate of Orientalist language in those archival documents around the figure of the Arab man, a substrate of Orientalist language that persists in some of the new history writing. But there's a third explanation for this lack, and that is the very post-colonial critique of the kind of Orientalism that I have described from Edward Said onwards. In In the 39 years since its publication, it has been 39 years now, Edward Said's Orientalism has reverberated in each of the disciplines that collectively constitute Middle East studies, including history. The book had positive effects um, that many of us know well. It forced us to take seriously the reality of the power relations produced and reinforced by British and French colonialism and to detect the way in which those power relations are reflected in texts. Partly as a result of Said's work, most recent histories of the Middle East, have, histori- sorry, most recent historians of the Middle East have produced scholarship that is strongly critical of the British and French colonial projects in the region. Here's just a list of some of the books um, that kind of dominate the field and that are assigned a lot um, in the class. As you can see from the titles, they're all critiques of the colonial project. This dominated the history of the field. Um, for a very long time. But because so many of us have been circling around colonial history in order to critique it, we have very few narrative histories that take as their starting points the people of the region. We have very few histories in English of Iraqi bankers, Syrian lawyers, Palestinian school teachers, and Egyptian army officers. And this extends even to politicians. Of course, Eugene's... um, Big narrative history, the Arabs in history, was a real breath of fresh air for me um, and for many others, I think, when it came out because it was a you know, beautifully written, densely researched narrative history that had people at its centre driving the story. 
We do have some histories of women and workers because the politics of post-colonial Saidian history allows for disempowered groups to be historical actors. But generally speaking, the kind of historians who could write empathetic detailed narratives of Arab officers in 1948 would not be inclined to undertake such a project because military and political history has been so out of fashion in the broader field of Middle East history. That's outside the narrow field of the history of the Arab-Israeli conflict, which has its own internal dynamics. Writing a detailed narrative of people is different from taking a cluster of colonial memoranda and memoirs and subjecting, subjecting them to discourse analysis in an effort to determine which kinds of texts these are, orientalist, modern, nationalist. We have so much work um, that is doing that. Writing a detailed narrative history is also different from deploying these sources and others in an effort to address big historical questions, such as what was the nature of the French colonial state in Syria, or where did Jordanian nationalism draw its authenticity from, subject of, for example, Joseph Massad's book, Colonial Effects. By contrast, a detailed narrative demands close description, compelling plot, and fleshed-out protagonists. Without these elements, the narrative loses its forward momentum and ceases to be a good story. But constructing description, plot, protagonists, and action inevitably involves manipulating the sources, distilling them, interpreting them, ordering them in a larger effort to create something new. The sources serve as the building blocks of a novel story. They cannot be treated as texts in a narrative. The need for the author of a detailed narrative to take command of the sources and deploy them as part of an original narrative strategy requires that the supposedly post-Orientalist historian step away from the safety of discourse analysis. It's often people who think of themselves as very politically radical who do discourse analysis, but it's actually an extremely safe thing to do politically because you don't have to really take any risks because you're, you're usually just critiquing. To step away from the safety of discourse analysis and take up a more authoritative command of the sources. This requires a methodological move that can look like a return to the objective description put forward by traditional Orientalist historiography. Indeed, the superficially similar approaches of these two distinct projects, detailed narrative history on the one hand, colonialist and orientalist discourse on the other, may have steered some younger scholars away from narrative history. It's really hard to describe people, places and things in narrative. You run the risk of being stripped of the label of post-orientalist and having it replaced instead with the currently circulating neo-orientalist. So this general absence of detailed narr narrative history in the field of modern Middle East history in general is another reason why we have so few detailed narrative histories of Arab officers and politicians in the 1948 for, war for Palestine. So this brings me back to the book and what I'm trying to do in the final chapter entitled Palestine 1948. I'm really trying to do something quite simple. And that is to write a detailed, precisely contextualized account of some of the Arab men who bore the responsibility, for one reason or another, of dealing with the crisis of 1948. And I want to be clear, I'm not trying to turn them into heroes. This is a generation that is widely discredited in the Arab world because they seem to have failed. Rather, I'm trying to accord them a fair reading and show how they were having to make extremely difficult decisions in impossible circumstances, circumstances that were not of their making. I've just put together a quick slide um, of some of the Arab officers in 1948. 
in the top uh, left-hand corner, that's Shaukat Shukeya, who was a commanding officer in the Lebanese army. Next to him is Adib Shashakli. Next to him is Subhi al-Umari. And then the, the young man um, next to him is Tahel Hashemi, who was the inspector general of the Arab Liberation Army. Sorry, Subhi al-Umari was also a, a member of the committee, uh, the technical committee of the Arab League that ran the Arab Liberation Army. And Adib Shishakli was um, also one of the commanders in the Arab Liberation Army and went on to be the leader of Syria for four years. On the bottom there is Abdul Qadir al-Husseini, the famous Palestinian commander. In the middle is Fawzi al-Kawukji, uh, arriving in Jabba in 19, March 1948 as the field commander um, of the Arab Liberation Army. And next to him is Ahmed Sherabati, the minister, Syrian minister of defense. I couldn't even find a photograph of Ismail Safwat, um, the Iraqi general who was the head of the committee that ran the Arab Liberation Army. And most of these photos were extremely difficult to find, Googling in Arabic and in English. And some of these are of these men when they were much younger. It was hard to find photographs of them from the actual time of 1948. So that in and of itself is an indication of how under-researched these these figures are. Now I'm just going to finish by reading to you from a few paragraphs of the book where I'm trying to narrate the way in which Kawukji and the members of the military committee of the Arab League were trying to cope with the looming crisis of impending war in Palestine in the last months of 1947 and early 1948. And I'll just in 30 seconds set the context for you before I start to read. First, the general context. It's important to know that the chapter entitled Palestine 1948 is the last chapter of the book. It comes after we have read about Kawukji fighting in Palestine in 1917 as an Ottoman officer to try and stop the British advance northwards. It comes after he has fought for years against the French army in Syria and after he fought the British army again in Palestine in 1936 and after he fought the British army in Iraq in 1941. Thus configured, Palestine in 1948 is his last anti-colonial war. In fact, you could say that the main narrative frame of the book is to put the 1948 war in the context of a continuum of colonial occupation after the collapse of the Ottoman Empire and the struggle against that occupation by men who never accepted the post-World War I dispensation in the Middle East. Now to the closer context. On September 26, 1947, the British declared that they would be withdrawing from Palestine, and the partition resolution was passed at the United Nations just two months later, on November 29, 1947. The partition resolution gave half of Palestine to European Jewish settlers to establish a permanent state there. The leaders of the, new, of the newly created Arab states and the men working with them faced a shocking reality. Whereas the end of French and British colonial rule in Syria, Lebanon, Jordan, Iraq and Egypt had brought full independence, the end of British rule in Palestine would result in the permanent establishment of a European settler colonial state. They had not expected this and they had just a few weeks to try to forge a coherent and effective response. Apart from the Arab League, which was only two years old, they had few joint institutions to provide the structural base to face this crisis. In addition, in most cases, their own states were so new that there was little state infrastructure to draw on, and their armies, with the exception of the British-supplied Arab Legion in Jordan, were relatively weak. 
the accounts of the many meetings, informal and formal, that took place in this period show men trying to decide how to face the looming deadline of British withdrawal. The overarching theme is one of the clock ticking. The calendar of events that these men found themselves having to respond to was not set by them. It was a calendar made in London and at the UN. So I'm just going to finish reading from the book, from the part of the book that was almost the most difficult part to write, but also the part that I was most kind of oddly exhilarated by writing. I remember coming up from my study and thinking to myself, God, I think this, is, I'm, this book is going to be quite good. <laughs> um, it was the moment where I suddenly... I think it was because it was, it was the 48th chapter and I had been trained so well in 48 that I really... I felt, um, yeah, I felt that I was really able to contribute something. Many Arab politicians had secretly believed that the British would not abandon Palestine and that that it would not come to their having to fight against the Zionists for control of Arab and Muslim land. But the date of British withdrawal, May 14, 1948, had been firmly set and some British units had started to pull out of the Galilee as early as January 1948. As of December 6, Kawukchi had become responsible for recruiting and organising a volunteer force that had to be ready to enter Palestine within a few weeks. This meant setting up recruitment stations and training centres. It meant procuring uniforms, arms, food and money to pay the soldiers. It meant finding and appointing good experienced officers to train inexperienced volunteers. And all this had to be done in the face of a reluctant Arab League, a particularly rainy and cold winter, an outbreak of cholera in Damascus, and the active opposition of the de facto leader of the Palestinians. In January and February 1948, Kawukji ran the field command of Jaishalin Kav, that's the Arab Liberation Army, from two locations, his home in Damascus and the new training camp based just outside the small town of Katana, a few miles north of Damascus. Katana was chosen for the main training camp because it was out of the way, but close to Damascus and the Lebanese border, It was also near barren desert hills, which were good for artillery training. During this time, Kawukji received journalists in his home. On February 2, 1948, Al-Ahram published an interview with Kawukji, written up by the United Press correspondent in Damascus, Samir Suki. Suki describes the comings and goings at Kawukji's home in some detail. And here's a quote from the interview. This Arab leader motivated by utmost resolve, has made of his home a military headquarters guarded by irregulars in American military uniform. Not an hour of the day passes without Bedouins, peasants and young men in modern clothes turning up on his doorstep demanding to enlist as as volunteers in the Arab Liberation Army. He also has headquarters in Katana where volunteers are undergoing military training waiting to be sent to Palestine. He refused to let me visit the place though which no journalist has ever seen. In his house, there's a special room entered only by trusted people. The room of his aide-de-camp, Mahmoud Arafai, a graduate of the Potsdam Military Academy. While we were talking, I noticed that Tahel Hershmi, who military experts say is one of the greatest military leaders in the Arab world, entered. Kawukji asked to be excused and took him to another room. I noticed that Hershmi was carrying several large maps of Palestine to review. There was much enthusiasm about Jaishalin Kath in the Arab press in January, February and March 1948. This helped the recruitment efforts. Recruiting stations began operating in the major cities of the region, including Baghdad and Cairo. Some recruits also came from tribes in Jordan, Syria 
and Iraq. A few even traveled from as far as Tunisia, Morocco, and the Nejd. Kawuchi also made serious attempts to recruit in Palestine, despite the Mufti's opposition to his leadership. In Kawuchi's private papers, there's a general recruitment letter dated February 17, 1948, signed by the general leadership of recruitment in Palestine and copied to the military committee in Damascus and to Kawuchi himself. The letter was intended to help local recruiters convince Palestinians that Jaisalin Karth was legitimate. Twenty-five years later, when Kawuchi was sorting through his papers, he picked this letter out and scribbled a comment on a note card that he attached to the document, trying to form a leadership and a Palestinian force that would be connected with us. The loss of Palestine in 1948 haunted Kawuchi's engagement with his own archive. The number of recruits was never huge. It's difficult to be precise about numbers because the sources contradict one another. But there were no more than 4,000 recruits, and most of these were Syrians and Iraqis. Many left Katana soon after they arrived because they weren't paid or because supplies were meagre. Those who stayed often complained about poor training, mainly because of the lack of qualified officers. This was a problem that plagued Jaisalin Kar throughout the war, There were never more than four or five officers in each battalion, and many of the ordinary troops had never fought before. Some battalions, although officially part of Jaisalin Karth, conducted um, many of their operations independently from Kawukji's field command. This was certainly the case with the famous Syrian officer Adib Shashakli. Some historians have described Jaisalin Karth along rigid lines of command and with a clear distribution of battalions. Then they have narrated its fate from the viewpoint of this structure. But this doesn't do justice to the historical reality and complexity of what actually unfolded. The creation of a new army in a few weeks was an achievement. By March 1948, it had battalions, officers, and ordinary ranks in uniform, some supplies and rudimentary communications units, including wireless operators. It also had some field hospitals and administration units to take care of pay, publicity, and so on. Jaisalin Karth had a structure, but this structure was always under pressure from older and more established lines of loyalty. Shishakli's battalion is an example of this. Another example was a small Druze battalion under Shakib Waheb, which eventually agreed to participate, but only if it remained independent of central command. <clears throat> Expectations of Kawukji's success were high, partly because much had been made of the modernness of Jaisalin Karth. People like Hershemi insisted all along that this was not 1936 when armed bands of men entered Palestine independently. This new army had to be modern and organized in order to defeat the British in the Haganah. But because the current of old loyalties ran strong under the surface of the army's modern structure, Kawukji actually exercised only limited authority. The tension between his responsibility and his lack of real power was the axis around which the war spun out of his control. That's it.